Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Vaccines are in the news every day. Deciding to be vaccinated is an important step. Tonight, on call with the Prairie Doc. Good evening and welcome to On Call with the Prairie Doc. I'm Kelly Evans. We've all learned more about vaccines lately than many of us ever thought we would. First, let's take a look at this week's Prairie Doc quiz question. It's multiple choice. Which is the most common adverse effect from the COVID-19 vaccines? A, fever and chills, B, sore arm or injection site reaction, C, fatigue, or D, headache? Viewers who call in the correct answer will be entered into a drawing to win a copy of the book, The Picture of Health. Each of Dr. Holmes' essays, originally written for On Call with the Prairie Doc, comes with a wonderful accompanying photograph by Dr. Judith Peterson. We will announce the answer and the winner at the end of the show. Remember, you only have 10 minutes to get your answer in. We answer your questions about vaccines as they are called in or sent to us via Facebook or email. Call in questions to 1-888-376-6225 or send us an email to the address on the screen. Joining us tonight in the studio, are Dr. Jennifer Shu with Sanford Infectious Disease and Travel Medicine Clinic in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And remotely via Zoom is Dr. Susan Hoover, also with Sanford Infectious Disease and Travel Medicine Clinic. Welcome Dr. Shu and Dr. Hoover. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Yeah, so as infectious disease physicians, I imagine you spend a lot of your time clinically treating infections, but tonight we're talking about vaccines and infection present prevention. Can you talk about how you um, use vaccines and prevention um, with your patients and, and um, what part of your job that entails a little bit, Dr. Shu? Sure. We mm -hmm. spend a significant portion of our time encouraging patients to get their vaccines, particularly among adults. It's less emphasized. We spend a right. lot of time thinking about childhood vaccines and the importance of them. But I think that that message get, gets missed in our mm -hmm. adult populations, particularly in our middle-aged adult populations. Yeah. So we spend a lot of time trying to get that, those patients appropriately immunized. Um, we also spend a lot of time talking about travel immunizations, preparing mm -hmm. people for international travel uh, to prevent diseases that aren't typically acquired in the U.S. So it's actually one of my favorite things to counsel patients mm -hmm. about because it's such an important tool for prevention and health maintenance. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dr. Hoover, the, there's an elephant in this room and it's the COVID-19 vaccines. We've, we're seeing it all over in the news all the time. It's really bombarded us. And, um, you know, at the time we scheduled this show, I didn't really think we'd be quite so far into the process of actually vaccinating our patients. But um, give, give me an idea of your experience with the COVID-19 vaccines promotion and what you're seeing um, clinically in Sioux Falls with that. Sure, and I completely agree with you, Dr. Evans. I never thought that less than a year after the discovery of this virus, we would have an effective vaccine or that it would be so effective. Um, as you know, the two mRNA vaccines are, in the clinical trials, were over 95% effective mm -hmm. in preventing COVID infection. 
So I think there's a, a huge excitement about this vaccine, both locally and nationally. There are people um, who really can't wait to get vaccinated. We have had a lot of wonderful emotional uh, stories mm -hmm. and, and photos of people just smiling or crying or being so happy to get the vaccine. At the same time, I think that the CDC has done a good job of keeping in mind that we need to be equitable here and we need to make extra efforts to get the vaccine to people who maybe um, wouldn't have the easiest time accessing it, whether for geographic reasons mm -hmm. or age or socioeconomic factors. So there's really been a big push both at Sanford um, in the local community and in the whole country to give people every opportunity to get this vaccine if they want it. Yeah. Yeah, good. Um, and on that note, I've seen a few national stories, including one about our um, Rosebud Reservation here in South Dakota of how successful um, Indian Health Services has been in distributing vaccine among Indian reservations, which is a, a really nice story to see at this point in time. Yeah. Um, we, they, of course, we've learned a lot about the mRNA vaccine. So the, the current um, authorized, I shouldn't say approved, but authorized vaccines are the Pfizer and Moderna version. So give us the general two cents about the mRNA vaccines. And these are new. We don't have any other vaccines that use this type of technology, correct, Dr. Shu? Correct. Yeah. We don't have any other routine vaccines, although it's a technology that's been developed over some time. Mm -hmm. So we talk about these being new vaccines, but it was really science that had been available for a long time waiting for this type of event. So basically the mRNA vaccines, they give a message to your cells um, to respond like they would to the mm -hmm. SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. As soon as that message has done its job, the enzymes within the cell degrade it. And mm -hmm. so it's a very short lived message uh, that primes our immune system then to respond appropriately if we were ever exposed to SARS-CoV-2. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And Dr. Hoover, we're, there's new stories out just today that the FDA is reviewing this Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Can you give us, what, what do we know about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, how is it different from the two that we've been using for the last couple of months? Yeah, that one is pretty different. Mm -hmm. um, it is what they call a recombinant vaccine. So it's not a SARS-CoV-2 virus, but it's an adenovirus, which is another type of human respiratory virus, which has been um, sort of disabled. So it won't make you sick with adenovirus illness. And it's been given a message, um, just as the mRNA vaccines, it makes a little protein from the COVID virus, from the SARS-CoV-2. So it will, um, again, bring that SARS-CoV-2 protein to your body so that your body can learn to recognize it and make antibodies and other immune responses to fight off uh, COVID-19. So that one's a little different in that it itself is what we call a recombinant virus, but it, it is uh, uh, sort of crippled, so it can't make you actually mm -hmm. sick. So that's a different, um, type of technology and it has different storage requirements and different um, dosing requirements. So it'll be a, a slight change from the ones that we've been using in the U.S. so far. Mm -hmm. So a single dose and easier to store and distribute, generally speaking, correct? Right. Yeah, yes. good. So but that, it, if, it, if the data looks good, there'll probably be a place for it. I mean, we all think that more effective vaccine is good, right? Is there any downside to having all these choices, do you think? Absolutely not. Yeah. And I think one thing that we've heard commonly is people expressing concern that the efficacy of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is lower than we, what we've seen with Pfizer and Moderna. 
But the, the point is it's still an effective vaccine. It allows for more equitable distribution, in mm. particularly in parts of the world um, where we may, they may not have freezer capacity and where that right. one dose really makes a difference in terms of the success of an immunization campaign. And so really we, we wanna work to get shots in arms and yeah. it's still a very efficacious vaccine and would encourage people that have that option to use it. Mm -hmm. And just impressive the data, um, not only about preventing infection in general, but preventing severe infection, which is really what we care about most. As most are aware, healthcare providers were among the first recipients of the COVID-19 vaccines. So we wanted to share with our audience some video of the Prairie Docs receiving our shots in the arms. As you can see, it was quick, painless, and most of all, a sign of hope that we will eventually return to normal. Doctors Johnston, Cruz, Ellsworth, and I were vaccinated. And I, for one, did so without any reservations. And you know, you mentioned early that this can be an emotional thing and there are great stories. I mean, I felt, I definitely felt a flood of emotions having gone through what we've gone through as healthcare providers over the last year to have the symbol of the vaccine in the arm really was a meaningful thing for, for us. And, um, and again, I, I again shared your reservations. I couldn't believe, you know, when someone maybe said something on the news in July that we were gonna have an effective vaccine by the end of 2020, I thought there's just no way that's possible. But when the data was released in December, it was so good. It was just, it's great, it's good data. And by the time I had the chance to get vaccinated, I had all the confidence in, in, in it. And um, what, I mean, what, what would you say we're, we're seeing downtrends in infections? Do you think that has to do with vaccine or other things or a combination of things? What would you say about that, Dr. Shu? I think there are likely several factors that yeah. play into that. It's not any one thing bringing down the rates of COVID. I think um, it's a combination of, we have a large chunk of um, US citizens who've been exposed to COVID mm -hmm. and who have some degree of natural immunity combined with the fact that we're um, getting more and more people vaccinated every day, combined with the fact that, you know, we're a year into this. And so some of the lifestyle adaptations that we've mm -hmm. made with masking and social distancing and just the, the physical barriers to spreading infection, I think people have become more accustomed to. So I think it's a lot of little bits of progress. It's not one magic bullet. Right, right. And Dr. Hoover, I think there's some confusion around the fact that the CDC is still recommending that after I get a vaccine that I still continue to wear a mask when I'm around other people. Can you explain the rationale for that? And do you think that will be a permanent recommendation or might that change at some point? I do think that will change. Mm -hmm. I think we all have to be patient a little bit longer here. We're still learning about this very rapidly. And I know that those recommendations will change. The rationale I think is that um, in the clinical trials of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, what they were looking for was diagnosed COVID-19 illness. They weren't so much looking for people who might get the virus, have no symptoms, but still be able to pass it on to other people. So they're being very cautious, mm -hmm. the CDC is, and saying, we know that if I've been vaccinated, I'm much less likely to get sick. But can I still be essentially a vector of transmission? Can I get the virus, not be sick myself, mm -hmm. but make, for example, one of my patients sick or one of my close contacts? They don't know that for sure yet. Mm -hmm. And so they're being extra cautious. But I, I want to assure the public that this is a work in progress mm -hmm. and that we expect further recommendations to come down as we learn more about it.
Yeah, and like everything with this, there are just questions that we don't always know the answer to right away and we have to keep investigating. And so, you know, I, I, I think that at some point we will be able to, with more confidence, say that that's not such a risk, but it won't be because someone changed their mind. It would be because we got more data, right? Exactly. <laughs> Good. Um, Tell, tell us a little bit about adverse effects. You know, when I'm seeing patients, I, and, and if, if we're talking about questions about the vaccine, I, I tell them, you can expect to probably not feel the greatest for a day or two after the vaccine. How common are adverse effects and what is typical for us to see, Dr. Shu? Mm -hmm. So the, the side effects really, in the scheme of things, have been mild. There have been mm -hmm. very few severe adverse events mm -hmm. um, reported. And so most people can expect a sore arm like mm -hmm. you would with any vaccine that you get, that mm -hmm. you're gonna have an achy arm. We've seen some mild local skin reactions where people have some redness and swelling around the injection site. Some people do report some flu-like symptoms in terms of fevers, chills, mm -hmm. sweats, body aches. Uh, most of those symptoms are short-lived, 24 to 48 hours after the vaccine. And I like to counsel my patients that that means your immune system's revving up, doing what it's supposed to do mm -hmm. to respond to that vaccine. So um, to me, that's a positive sign that you're building that immunity and that was the whole reason you got the vaccine in the right. first place. So most side effects have been um, fairly mild and short-lived. Mm -hmm. Good. And p there's some mixed messages about whether people should take ibuprofen or Tylenol or one or the other or neither. Dr. Hoover, can you comment on that? Some recommendations have recently come out saying it, it's not really recommended that you take ibuprofen or Tylenol before the vaccine as a preventative measure. But certainly if you experience sore arm, fever, headache afterwards, mm -hmm. it's okay to take those things after. And the idea is, we don't know, but for some vaccines, especially in children, it seemed like pre-medication with ibuprofen might have reduced the immune response. And we don't wanna take any chance that that we reduce that. We want to give you every chance to make a really good response to the vaccine as mm -hmm. long as you're getting it. Mm -hmm. But once your arm is sore and you're feeling achy, you're probably already experiencing that immune reaction, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> good. That's the idea. Yeah. yeah. And I think the most important thing is to get the vaccine. So if being able to take Tylenol or ibuprofen afterwards makes you feel better, makes you feel more confident about getting it, then by all means. Yeah, good, good. Um, when the first doses of the COVID vaccine came out in December, Andrea Polkinghorne was tasked with getting those shots to South Dakotans. Prairie Doc reporter Carter Schmidt talked to her about those efforts and what is coming next. Stanford is receiving around 4,000 doses um, a week. And then our, our goal and hope is always to have an empty freezer at the end of the week um, so that those vaccines aren't sitting in freezers, that they're in people's arms being used. Um, and then we get uh, doses the next, early the next week. As the immunization strategy leader, I'm tied into a, a lot of different listservs and email communications. So it's definitely a, a multidisciplinary uh, team. There are a ton of people working on this within Sanford. So any, anyone from pharmacy, myself, um, some nursing leaders, we have some executive leaders, tons of IT personnel, um, clinical informatics, risk compliance. So just walking through all the information that we have, educating our staff about the vaccine. So 
not only for them to make their own personal choice about accepting the vaccine, but so that they can um, effectively educate our patients on the vaccine. It was really talking about how some of those different phases in the development of COVID vaccine um, overlapped and also that the manufacturers were developing or producing the vaccine during the clinical trials um, and they received funding from the federal government to do that. So that was a huge piece of the education. And then next kind of came this um, dispelling myth. So things like the vaccine can alter your DNA. Um, it can cause you know, women to become infertile. Um, those different things to help people understand um, what science actually says about those things. What are some of the mass vaccination events so far that you've seen in South Dakota? Have there been some and you know where at? No, there have not really been any today. We have held um, multiple planning sessions with the Department of Health to talk about what that would look like when we're ready for that, but there simply isn't enough vaccine coming into the state at this time for us to host a, a large event like that. So really right now, it's, it's each of the health systems contacting our patients within the um, priority grouping to recall them for vaccination and then also dedicating efforts for um, those areas where we have county responsibility, but there are people who are not our patients to get them taken care of as well. I'm extremely proud of the work that um, our team has done. I think we've done a phenomenal job of trying to build a, a seamless process for our, our employees and our patients since our employees went through it too. We have received countless emails from um, our staff, and or patients just saying how smooth the process is. Um, we've become a, a well-oiled efficient machine, which can definitely vaccinate more people if we had the doses. I personally stopped in our Sioux Falls vaccinating site um, a couple of different times actually. And it honestly just brought tears to my eyes to see how excited people are to have the ability to get vaccinated. Um, it's very heartwarming. It's it's empowering to know that we're slowly crawling out of this horrific pandemic and there's light at the end of the tunnel. Mass vaccination events are now being held throughout the Midwest. For example, just today in Brookings, the Swift Health Center was the site of a community vaccination center. How are these pods, P-O-D-S, or points of dispensing, helping with the vaccination effort? Um, I think Andrea just said that there that had not occurred yet in the state, and I think this one in Brookings was the first um, mass vaccination event, and they vaccinated a thousand people today. So, um, you know, as more vaccine comes comes available, we may see more of this. I don't know. Have you heard of any any organization that's happening around mass vaccination in the state? No, I have not heard yeah. of any other events. Mm -hmm. I would defer to Dr. Hoover if she's heard. Yeah, any. Dr. Hoover, have you heard about any organization there? No, as Andrea said, the supply is still somewhat limited right yeah. now. So you don't want to set up an event and then run out of vaccine. Right. That would be terrible. Right, right. <laughs> okay. We've got some questions coming in. So we'll, we'll go through some questions about the COVID vaccine, and then we'll hit some other vaccine questions as well. Um, after taking the first shot from Pfizer, how much immunity um, would be 
expected before receiving the second shot and then how long until immunity kicks in for the second shot. So um, Dr. Hoover, what do we know about that single shot effect? And, and maybe, maybe we just don't know a lot, but can you give us some numbers there that we know? Yeah, this is a really hot topic right mm -hmm. now because with the limited supply and the, and the fears that there will be another surge, people are thinking a lot about could we um, either have just one shot or could we delay the second shot longer than mm -hmm. um, three weeks in the case of Pfizer. We do know from the clinical trials that there seemed to be some protection after shot one and before shot two, but the number of cases that happened in that three-week window was not very high. So mm -hmm. Pfizer was um, somewhat limited in what they could say about it. And the FDA and CDC are very cautious. They mm -hmm. don't want to recommend something that we don't actually have the data for. Um, so they, they will not, I think, officially change the recommendation. But mm -hmm. people are really having a lot of conversations about this right now. So I can say that the first shot does confer some protection, um, but we don't know yet enough to say that we can abandon the second shot or how long we could delay it. But it's another area that we're learning rapidly, Dr. Evans, and I yeah. expect more is to come. Yeah, good. A caller is wondering, should you take your prescriptions as normal the morning that you get to the COVID vaccine? Dr. Shu, are there any prescriptions that might interfere with, with vaccine reaction? No, no, I would say you continue your usual prescriptions. I think for patients who have more complicated health conditions, mm -hmm. wherein they need to have a discussion about the potential risks or the efficacy of the vaccine, they should have that conversation with their healthcare provider mm -hmm. ahead of time. But when it comes to the day of, there's nothing to do. You just go and, and get your shot and yeah. take your prescriptions like normal. Yeah. And on that note, Dr. Hoover, are there any real contraindications to getting this vaccine? Meaning, are there any medical conditions or medicines that people take that should make them say, I, I, I can't get the vaccine? Really, hardly anything. Yeah. For the mRNA vaccines, the contraindications are, and this is kind of obvious, but a person who had anaphylaxis, so a life-threatening allergic reaction, to their first dose should not get a second dose. Um, a person who ever had such a life-threatening reaction to the substance called polyethylene glycol, um, which is a component of the vaccine, should not get this vaccine. Um, those are really the only contraindications, meaning absolute no. People who've had um, immediate reactions to other vaccines um, that have these, these same components in them, it's a relative contraindication. So to think about the risks and benefits. But the ordinary kinds of allergies, even a serious reaction to something like food or animals or mm -hmm. a, a medication that's not part of the vaccine, is, is actually not a contraindication at all. So I think the list of people who truly should not receive this vaccine is, is pretty short. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if someone had a more severe reaction to their first vaccine, would you advise them against getting a second vaccine? Or that's probably a conversation about the specifics, right? Right. It's about the specifics. Mm -hmm. If it were anaphylaxis, meaning blood pressure dropping, passing out, throat closing, that mm -hmm. kind of thing that you might see on an emergency show on TV, that would be one thing. But a sore arm, a headache, some of the things that Dr. Shu mentioned, definitely not a reason to skip your second dose. Good. One caller was wondering if we could further elaborate about the various compounds within the vaccine and des des describe why those compounds might be causing some adverse effects following the injection. Um, and I guess I want to clarify, do we think that it's other components or compounds in the vaccine or do we think it's the immune reaction, Dr. Shu? 
really we think it's the immune vac the immune reaction. Yeah. This is a very effective vaccine. It promotes a very robust immune response. And so those symptoms when we get sick that we feel that mm -hmm. we associate with the flu, whether mm -hmm. that's COVID or influenza, when we have fevers, chills, body aches, fatigue, that's actually mostly due to our immune system fighting that virus. Yeah. And so in much the same way with the vaccines, when our body is making that protein like the coronavirus and our immune system's responding to that, we have similar uh, side effects. So mm -hmm. I think the bulk of those symptoms are coming actually from our body doing what it needs to do to protect us. Yeah. Yeah, good. Um, one caller was questioning if they're at more risk of adverse effects following the first or the second injection of the vaccine. Dr. Hoover, is, is there data that the second injection seems to create more side effects? Yes, in the clinical trials, yeah. it did seem to be that way. Yeah, and that makes sense, right? I mean, your body's seen, the, seen the, this protein once and now it's really ready to attack. Yeah, again, it might mm -hmm. be a good sign, mm -hmm. as, as Dr. Schumann. Yeah, good. Um, a caller from Centerville is wondering, can you carry and spread COVID-19 after receiving both vaccine doses? And again, kind of an unanswered question, Dr. Shu. what do it, we know? It is, we touched yeah. on this earlier. Mm -hmm. It is really an unanswered question at this point. We are starting to have some preliminary data that suggest that a two-dose vaccine series does reduce the risk of transmission, but we just don't know mm -hmm. yet. And so that's a question that yet is yet to be answered. And I think I would reiterate what we mentioned earlier. A lot of what we're seeing here is science in action. So yeah. as we learn more, we ask that next question. And then this is one of those next really important questions. Yeah, good. A caller from Hot Springs is wondering if they're able to do anything different lifestyle-wise after getting the vaccine. Is it safe not to mask up quite as much? And I would, I would broaden that, you know, what are you telling patients to what behaviors might be safer to think about after getting vaccinated, Dr. Hoover? This is such a hard one. And as we talked mm -hmm. about earlier, I think this guidance will evolve. I, yeah. I think we will learn more. Right now, There's it's really not recommended that you relax anything too much. Um, wearing a mask, keeping your distance, staying away from sick people, staying home if you are sick, and avoiding large gatherings of people, especially indoors, is still the recommendation for now. And I know it's frustrating to think I had this vaccine and I still have to do these things, but this is not forever. Mm -hmm. We know that this will change. We need to learn more about how the vaccination affects the rates in our country before we can feel totally safe changing the recommendation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have anything to add there, Dr. Shu? No, I think that it is a little bit disheartening. You want to feel that this shot in the arm is going to let you go back to normal. But I think at this point, we just don't have enough data to support that. So mm -hmm. I think, you know, people should feel assured after they've had the vaccine that their risk of severe illness from COVID has dramatically decreased. Yeah. The likelihood of being hospitalized or dying from COVID is extraordinarily lower than it was. Mm -hmm. uh, but we still need to mask and socially distance. Um, in part for ourselves, but also really for those people around us who aren't yet vaccinated. Yeah. So, you know, we've had the fortunate healthcare workers of being vaccinated. We, many of our high risk patients have been vaccinated, but a large chunk of our communities have not yet been vaccinated. And so I look at it as just a way, I just need to keep protecting those people around me who haven't yet had that opportunity to be vaccinated. Right. Okay. A caller from Custer is wondering, why is there polyethylene glycol in the vaccine? Is it safe? And what other ingredients are in the vaccine? Dr. Hoover? So you can actually look up a complete list of what's in the vaccine if you're interested. Mm -hmm. you go to uh, www.cdc.gov and follow the directions towards the COVID section. Um, you can get a list of ingredients in both vaccines. Um, 
And these are things that are put in there to, to stabilize it. The RNA itself is not a very stable molecule. Um, it will degrade if exposed to air, water, the environment, our hands, things like that. And so it needs some stabilizers in it so that it can survive in a vial long enough to be injected um, in someone's arm. Mm -hmm. But those, those ingredients are definitely publicly available. Yeah. And I mean, the question, is it safe? We now have safety data on millions and millions of vaccinated people, and we have great safety data, right? Yes, yeah. so I actually was reading something today that said um, between December and the end of January, 14 million doses of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines were administered. Mm -hmm. 7,000 adverse events were reported to the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, which mm -hmm. is our national monitoring system. Mm -hmm. And of those 7,000, 91% were non-serious reactions. Mm -hmm. So the numbers of adverse events re being reported are very low to start with. Yeah. And then even among those that are reported, the rate of severe adverse effects has been extremely low. Yeah. So I think it's very reassuring that we've had so many vaccinated and, and so few consequences. And mm -hmm. maybe to tack on to that last caller's question, I would just add that, you know, polyethylene glycol is the main ingredient in the, um, in Miralax, which right. people take over the counter for constipation, a yeah. very commonly used medication. Oh, I tell people to take Miralax all the time. Right, and <laughs> so knowing how readily that's used yes. um, amongst our patients mm -hmm. and it's available over the counter and we don't really see significant yeah. problems with allergies, I think people should feel reassured that the likelihood of having a severe adverse effect from mm -hmm. that particular carrier molecule is very low. Yeah, great. A caller wanted to know if it's safe for someone with multiple sclerosis to receive the vaccine. How would you respond to that, Dr. Shu? Yeah, I think that's a, mm -hmm. that's a question that deserves discussion. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of that depends on the specifics of your multiple sclerosis mm -hmm. diagnosis, how active your disease is, and what medications you're using to treat the multiple sclerosis. Mm -hmm. So as Dr. Hoover said earlier, there are very few absolute contraindications. Mm -hmm. I think the question is more around um, the efficacy of that vaccine if you're taking medications that suppress your immune system. Mm -hmm. And so that's really the discussion to have with your provider because that one's gonna be particular to your situation. Right, so meaning we don't we're not worried about the safety in those patients. We're more worried about will the vaccine be as effective in a patient on an, immuno an immunosuppressant. Right, yeah. and so I think you maybe the point to emphasize is that you cannot get COVID from the vaccine. Right. Um, you, you may feel like you have COVID, but you cannot get the infection from mm -hmm. the vaccine. Mm -hmm. And so it's not a concern so much for safety as it is just, we don't have a sense of the efficacy in populations with specific diseases that right. may affect their immune system. And the flip side of that is that those people are at elevated risk of severe infection, right? So most, I think most physicians would probably advise that person to, to if they're comfortable getting the vaccine to go, to go ahead and do it. That's how I've personally counseled yeah. my patients with immunocompromising conditions, um, MS or other yeah. variety of things, people living with HIV infection, mm -hmm. as an example. I, I have strongly encouraged them to get the vaccine simply because I think their risk of having severe COVID is much higher than the risk of having a vaccine adverse event. Yeah, great. A caller from Mitchell has been told by his family doctor that he should hold off from getting the vaccine for about a year as he had such a bad case of COVID in the fall. So what, what data do we have? How long does immunity last from natural COVID infection? What do we know, Dr. Hoover? So we're learning about that. Yeah. Um, reinfection with COVID seems to be pretty rare, both overall and especially rare in the first few months. So that's one way of, of saying that, or of knowing that immunity lasts at least several months 
And then when they measure things like antibodies and T cell responses in people who've had COVID, they also stick around for at least six to eight months in these studies. So that gives us some preliminary idea of how long immunity would last. As far as having the vaccine, um, CDC does recommend that people who've had COVID get the vaccine, Mm -hmm. and they don't really put any time frame on it, other than, of course, you should wait until you're no longer contagious. So you should isolate yourself for your 10 days or a 14-day period, usually, and not go to the vaccine center while you're still infectious. Mm -hmm. Another thing that we're going to learn more about as time goes on. Yeah. So at some point, people should get vaccinated. We don't really know how long to to say you're definitely protected, but probably there's some period of time where people have a very low risk of getting infected again. Six months. Probably true. I would yeah. get the vaccine while you have the chance yeah. to be my vaccine. Yeah. To learn about how COVID-19 vaccines actually work, Prairie Doc reporter Tori Burnt sought the expertise of a virology expert. An mRNA vaccine, these are new vaccines. It's, uh... Um, so basically, the the viruses, uh, especially coronavirus, uh, use mRNA to uh, make proteins, specifically viral protein. And um, one of those virus proteins is a spike protein, a very small component, you know, a protein made by the virus um, as part of what's recognized uh, part of viral entry and also recognized by the immune system. So this mRNA vaccine is designed to enter into the host cell and use host cell machinery to get translated into protein, specifically that spike protein that then gets uh, produced by the cell. The immune system can recognize that and developing an antibody response against just that spike protein. They're very effective. Uh, They're generating very strong immune responses. As far as efficacy, uh, measuring the antibody response is uh, a measure of efficacy. Um, effectiveness will really be seen in the reduction in the spread of the virus, reduction in the number of cases, and ideally the reduction in the, uh, in the deaths that we're seeing with, uh, with uh, coronavirus. Um, so the numbers are still be coming in as far as how well it's going to be effective in the full population, uh, but we do know that this vaccine generates uh, strong antibody responses, which we uh, hope are going to be protective against Uh, viral spread and demonstrate that effectiveness. So what are some things that are commonly misconstrued about mRNA that are just totally not true? Probably one of the things that um, I've been hearing, you know, there are concerns that maybe the RNA uh, would, you know, take over the cell or, you know, make it do something that it's not supposed to do. That's not going to happen. mRNA exists in the cytoplasm. It doesn't go into the nucleus as part of the normal uh, process. So it's not going to get into anywhere near the the DNA and do anything like uh, integrate into the DNA or anything like that. It's basically just going to sit there, make the protein and release that protein. And that's going to be what's, um, you know, uh, the immune response is developed against. So as we talked about, mRNA technology is not a brand new technology. This is the first time we've seen it used widespread, but how, how has it been studied before, Dr. Shu? So it was studied with earlier outbreaks of coronaviruses um, with the initial SARS outbreak, mm-hmm. as well as MERS more recently. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so and for those outbreaks, they ended more naturally yeah. before it came to need a vaccine. And so there wasn't an opportunity to test those. Yeah. So this was a, a vaccine platform that was waiting for an opportunity to use it. Yeah, how lucky were we mm -hmm. for that? <laughs> um, let's go to some non-COVID vaccine questions. This show is all about vaccines and certainly we don't wanna neglect other important vaccines. Um, so I have a caller from Pipestone, Minnesota, remembers seeing her baby sister die of pertussis in the 1950s. She said it was terrible and encourages everyone to get a pertussis vaccine. Have Dr. Hoover, have you seen this and, and update us on what recommendations are for pertussis vaccines, both in kids and adults? Yeah, thank you, Pikestone Collar. That story is really powerful. Mm -hmm. um, children get a series of vaccines, including pertussis, um, in, their, in their young childhood. And so these are combined vaccines, usually combined with diphtheria, tetanus. So it's called DTaP, usually for kids. And then starting in... Um, usually teenage years, and then certainly for adults, we need what's called Tdap, which is your pertussis booster, also combined with your tetanus booster that you need as an adult. And so that one's really important, and maybe next time you're due for tetanus, your doctor might suggest you get this Tdap vaccine instead, because pertussis is something that in adults can cause an annoying cough or maybe hardly any symptoms at all, but can be fatal in children and little babies. Mm -hmm. And pregnant women get the Tdap vaccine, correct, to pass antibodies? Yes, yeah. and actually also the new fathers, the new grandparents, yes. anyone who's going to be in contact with that newborn is encouraged to get the Tdap. Yeah, great. Your show title says vaccines are for everyone, but some people cannot take vaccines. Can you please discuss the various reasons that might prevent some people from taking a vaccine? Um, so Dr. Shu, what conditions might make you think twice about giving routine vaccines? And are there specific vaccines that we have to think about that with? Yeah, absolutely. We do mm -hmm. need to think about those various safety precautions um, in some medical conditions, things like a solid organ transplant, a bone marrow transplant, cer certain types of chemotherapy, or certain types of immune suppressing drugs, we would avoid live vaccines. Mm -hmm. So some of our viral vaccines are live weakened viruses. And mm -hmm. so in patients who have a very low immune system, there's a risk of acquiring disease from the vaccine. So we would absolutely avoid those situations. We carefully evaluate prior reports of allergies. Mm -hmm. We've touched on that with the COVID right. vaccine, but certainly if someone had a, an, a Guillain-Barre or a, a severe allergic reaction, anaphylaxis after a vaccine, we would have to evaluate the safety depending on what that vaccine was and what the person's other medical conditions were. So definitely an important conversations to have. In general, I will just emphasize the risk of adverse events with the vaccines that we currently have available mm -hmm. today are extremely low. Mm -hmm. um, we have very safe vaccines available. And so if, a, if someone has, if that caller has a specific question about yeah. a personal contraindication of a vaccine, I would encourage them to ask right. uh, their providers about that. And there are steps we can take uh, referring people to allergy and immunology mm -hmm. um, to get other assessments of, of allergies that may help us work around a prior mm -hmm. adverse event. So yeah. definitely something we think about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and when, when it comes to those live weekend viral vaccines, which ones are those? Which, which ones do we have to think hard about giving to people with immunosuppressed conditions? So in adults, probably the one we would think about the most is measles, mumps, rubella. Yeah. Most have been vaccinated if they've had mm -hmm. their appropriate childhood immunizations, but we would think about um, MMR. Um, shingles used to be a live vaccine, yeah. but we have a wonderful new vaccine that is not a live vaccine and so no longer contraindicated 
in people with immune suppression. So mm -hmm. really not a lot. There are some yeah. of the travel vaccines that we wouldn't be able to sure. use, but those would not be part of a routine immunization schedule. Yeah. Good. A viewer from Wilmot asks about splitting up the MMR vaccine into three parts. So again, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. Is that possible and does it decrease the risk to my child? So Dr. Hoover, is there any evidence that having those vaccines combined gives any additional risk? No, there's not. And there's, so there's no reason to split it up and it makes it more difficult. And obviously it's more shots, potentially more appointments. So. Uh, I think that having them combined is the best way to do it. Great. A caller for, from Philip asks for more information on the HPV vaccine. Um, Dr. Hoover, tell us about the HPV vaccine. This is a relatively new vaccine series and, and who do we give it to and um, how does it work? Yeah, this is a vaccine that can actually prevent cancer and we give it to kids. There's a um, series that really every, um, child should get as part of their childhood immunization series. It can be given up to um, people in their 20s is the maximum age. It can be given to both uh, boys and girls. And it, as you say, it's a relatively new one and it's a way to prevent a, really a deadly cancer and also unnecessary suffering from human papillomavirus. Mm -hmm. Great. We've had a lot of new calls come in about COVID vaccines. So with limited time, we'll get through as many as we can. Um, in hospitals and clinics recently, has the general trend for COVID cases been increasing or decreasing? Dr. Shu? General trend in South Dakota and uh, na nationally is that they're decreasing. As yeah. we said earlier, it's probably multifactorial. It's not just the vaccine, but thankfully we are seeing a, a dramatic drop in the cases. Yes. A caller is wondering if it's safe to take the COVID vaccine if you've had Guillain-Barre syndrome. Dr. Hoover? Yes. Yeah, good. Does alcoholism have any effect on the severity of COVID infection? Dr. Shu? That's an interesting question. I don't know that I've seen that mm -hmm. spelled out as a specific risk factor, but alcohol abuse definitely impairs immune function. And so while I've not seen a specific look at that as a risk factor, I, we know that it increases the risk of other infections. Yeah. And I would certainly be worried that alcohol abuse would increase the risk of severe COVID. Yeah, you, one would expect it to, mm -hmm. given what we know about other infections. Right. A caller from Huron is wondering if you have to get the same vaccine type for your first and second shot. So what, what talk out there is there about mixing vaccines, et cetera, Dr. Hoover? It is recommended that you get the same uh, vaccine for both doses. If it were to accidentally happen that a person got Moderna, then Pfizer, or the other way around, I don't think we would do anything differently, um, but that is, the, that is not the recommendation. Yeah, good. Um, we had a caller ask about uh, monoclonal antibody infusions or convalescent plasma either. If you, if you got one of those treatments, there's a recommendation to wait 90 days before you get the vaccine. Why is that, Dr. Mm -hmm. Shu? Because that's provided passive immunity yeah. um, against the COVID, against SARS-CoV-2. And so we really wanna wait until that's fully out of the system so that you, your body has the ability to mount a full immune response. Yeah more about using a vaccine for someone who might not be able to actually take advantage of it at that time, right? I think it's a supply issue, but it's yeah. also making sure for the person who had the infusion mm -hmm. and is now getting the vaccine that they have the opportunity to mount the full immune response. Good. Yep. One caller was curious if drinking Pedialyte 12 hours before and 12 hours after the shot could help with possible side effects such as diarrhea and nausea. Dr. Hoover? I've not heard that recommendation. Yeah. Um, I think diarrhea and nausea have were reported in the trials, but they were definitely the 
among the least common side effects compared to a sore arm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would be hard to predict that. One caller wanted to know how the number of cases of the flu have completely dropped to almost none. He is happily impressed with the positive effects mask mandates and social distancing have had with the flu numbers this past year. He was curious if we would um, think that wearing masks would be the new normal, especially during flu season. We just had a conversation about this before the show, Dr. Shu. We just talked about that. <laughs> I think Dr. Evans and I both commented that we have not seen a case of influenza this year, and the numbers in it's South amazing. Dakota and nationally have been very, very low. Mm -hmm. Um, very few deaths, um, single digits in South Dakota related to influenza. So I, I don't know where this is going to go. I think this is an evolving question. There's been discussion I've seen on in the ID list serves about um, the infectious disease list serves about whether or not we will mask from November to April, mm -hmm. you know, what, which is what we typically consider influenza season. And previously, we accepted that tens of thousands of people were going to die from influenza every year. Mm -hmm. An average season would be 30 to 40,000 deaths. So mm -hmm. I think we have an opportunity to intervene on that. And personally, yeah. I find it really exciting that such a low cost, no risk intervention may help save a lot of people from severe influenza. Yeah, and there's there have been, you know, talk, is it is it because we're not testing for influenza that our numbers are so low? Why is that not true? Or why do we know that's not true? Well, I, I do think people are getting tested yeah. mm -hmm. um, for it. And particularly if someone has a compatible syndrome mm -hmm. and gets tested and they're negative for COVID that many providers would proceed with influenza testing yeah. next. Um, so I, I feel comfortable that it's real, that we aren't just aren't seeing flu. It's not yeah. that we're just not finding it. Right, and, and those people can't really hide from getting sick enough to be in the hospital either. And we're just right. not seeing that right. this year. It's amazing. Um, a caller is wondering about the source of the vaccine. Where does it come from? Where, I, I assume they mean where, where is it made? And are there any other mRNA vaccines out there? Dr. Hoover? So it's completely manufactured. It's made, there are machines that can make artificial RNA out of the, the chemicals that make up RNA. So there's nothing living that goes into it or is used in the production process. And there are, um, mRNA vaccines have been designed before and have been in studies in animals and a few people for other viruses. But these are the first ones that have been um, authorized by the FDA and have been used on a large scale. Mm -hmm. Yeah. and. MRNA, you know, what it, it's it's just an interesting concept. I I heard someone talk about this and that it's just really a brilliant thing because mRNA is so unstable that it really can't hang around to do anything bad after the vaccine reaction happens. Is that is that true about just how that molecule works? That was actually one of the limitations historically to using mRNA vaccines mm -hmm. was the mRNA was rapidly degraded by our normal cell processes. And so one of the real advances with these vaccines is that they have a coating around them mm -hmm. that allows the mRNA, mRNA to be safely trafficked into the cell, do its job before it's degraded. So actually, we had to engineer the vaccine in a way that it would get in and not be degraded before it did its job. Yeah, but otherwise a really elegant, innovative way to deliver a vaccine. Absolutely. It's pretty awesome. Absolutely. Now for the answer to tonight's Prairie Dot quiz question. Which is the most common effect from the COVID-19 vaccines, adverse effect. A, fever and chills, B, sore arm, C, fatigue, or D, headache. The answer is B, a sore arm at the injection site, a reasonable price to pay for the protection of the vaccine. 
The winner of tonight's quiz is Marilyn First from Wessington Springs, South Dakota. Thank you, Marilyn, for participating, and a book will be in the mail soon. We'll be right back after this. Welcome to your Prairie Doc Library at www.prairiedoc.org. Wherever you live or travel, you and your family can enjoy free and easy access 24 hours a day. Search for a specific topic. Browse through the television shows, radio programs, and blog page. You, your family, and friends around the world can learn from physicians and other health professionals answering questions on a variety of medical topics. Visit your Prairie Doc Library today at www.prairiedoc.org. Last summer, we heard the prediction that by the end of 2020, we would have a safe, effective vaccine to the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which had only been discovered, of course, in December 2019, before causing countless deaths and mayhem in the world as we knew it. I must admit, I was skeptical. Early in the pandemic, I learned that the fastest a vaccine had ever been developed was for the mumps virus, an effort which took four years. Even with all possible resources devoted to a COVID-19 vaccine, how could we ever do this in one year? Before I could even ponder this, however, my curiosity took me down the rabbit hole of the mumps vaccine. Maurice Hilleman, to whom the mumps vaccine is credited, is something of a superhero in the world of virology and vaccine development. Over the course of his career, he was involved in the development of 40 vaccines, including an influenza vaccine in 1957, estimated to have prevented hundreds of thousands of deaths. One night in 1963, Hilleman's young daughter, Geraldine, awoke him from sleep. She was feeling sick. Hilleman saw the telltale swelling of her salivary glands and knew she had the mumps. Mumps was a common childhood ailment, and while most children got mild illness, including the classic swollen cheeks, it also caused aseptic meningitis, deafness, and infertility in males. Hilleman put Geraldine back to bed, then drove to his lab to retrieve a swab and culture media. He returned and awoke young Gerald from her slumber to swab her mouth. Over the next four years, Hilleman cultured and tested the Geraldine strain of the mumps virus until it was safe enough to administer without the risk of illness, but still effective in generating an immune response against a normal mumps virus. Geraldine was present when her younger sister Kirsten was publicly immunized with the new mumps vaccine as a small child. As a result of Hilleman's vaccine, the United States now has only about 200 cases of mumps per year, compared to 200,000 per year before the vaccine. Back to that COVID-19 vaccine. Well, my timeline skepticism was unwarranted. In December 2020, data published on two separate vaccines using mRNA technology showed without ambiguity that we did have safe, effective vaccines just one year from the start of this pandemic. How so quickly? We can give credit to a modern technology being ready for this problem and the weight of thousands of scientists around the world. I think even Maurice Hilleman, the father of modern vaccines himself, would be impressed.
A big thank you to our guests, Dr. Shu and Dr. Hoover, for volunteering their time to help us learn more about vaccines tonight. A programming note, due to fundraising for South Dakota Public Broadcasting, we will not be broadcast next Thursday, March 4th. Then for the next two weeks, March 11th and 18th, South Dakota Public Broadcasting will be featuring the high school basketball playoffs. On Call with the Prairie Doc will be streamed on our Facebook page all three of those weeks, so please join us there. We will return live on March 25th with an all new episode. If you would like more information about this program or to see and hear more episodes of this series, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube or visit us at prairiedoc.org. And be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. That does it for tonight. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, until next time, stay healthy out there, people. That's a wrap. Great job. So, Mom, it's 20 years ago now that you and Dad uh, started this idea of uh, evidence-based medical shows for free for everyone. Does that sound right? That's right. And it was really great that you and, and your dad were able to create that theme music for us. Yeah, that was really cool. Making music with Dad, one of the best things. You know, I, as long as I can remember, you and Dad were pouring your energy and your heart and your soul into, into the Prairie Doc and into the Healing Words Foundation. And I'm just really proud of you. It's great to have people of your generation, like our new Prairie Docs, to uh, give us your ideas and to help continue Dad's legacy. It's our turn to uh, turn to the people out there and say, we need your help. <laughs> you can support us too. Uh, we do this without advertisements. We need independent support. So go to Prairie Doc org and make a donation today and uh, if you don't have money for that keep coming to see our show we need your support in other ways thanks thanks major funding for on call with the prairie doc has been provided by Avera is a proud sponsor of On Call with the Prairie Doc on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, South Dakota Foundation for Medical Care, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Peer District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, 
Yankton District Medical Society, Aberdeen District Medical Society, Urology Specialists, Orthopedic Institute, Physicians Care Sanford Clinic Community Service Committee, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swiftell Communications.